fact, you've challenged us to. If we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are followers through his finished work, we should be involved in missions. If we're not doing missions, we're not doing church, Lord. We should be giving and going and praying, sending and receiving. This is what we do, Lord. This is the great commission to spread the word of your son, his beautiful finished work around this globe. Lord, it always starts here. You even told the disciples that they were to go first here and then to Samaria and farther out and even to the remotest parts of the world. We thank you for the stringers, Lord. We ask that you bless them and protect them. Give them strength as they comfort people who have great loss this week. Many deaths, many homes destroyed. And so we pray that you would give them great opportunities Paul said that he prayed for a wide door of opportunity for the gospel. We pray the same for them, Lord, in their region where they serve. That they would have a wide door to preach the gospel. A gospel that's so contrary and so different to the message in their nation. And so, Lord, strengthen them. We thank you for children. We thank you for their three children. Delita and Ezra and now Antia. Lord, we pray that you would just strengthen her. Um, as a mom, as she cares for those and still ministers. We pray for Kyle as he's a father and a husband and and yet constantly involved with the church. And so, Lord, strengthen them. Thank you for them, Lord. They're encouraging to us, Lord. May we be the same to them. Lord, we do thank you for the church here that resides at Riverbend and Ormond Beach. It's your church. You build it. You gather it. We care for it. We pray for it. We love it. We nurture it and watch over it. But it is your church. And we thank you that we can all be mindful of that. And we can be passionate about this church. And we can hurt with it and weep with it and rejoice with it. And we can all be part of the greatest message in the world that's proclaimed from it. And Lord, we ask that you would do that greatly for your glory. Lord, we think of those who are going through procedures and surgeries and there's many just suffering, Lord. Some just with flus and coughs and colds. Others with things that threaten their life on this earth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them. Cause them to look at the challenges that you clearly have allowed in their life for experiences to grow close to you. May they not run from those things. May they embrace, all of us, the things you allow in our life to cause us to walk with you in a greater way. Lord, forgive us when we fail to use those opportunities. Cause us to be short in our fallings, quick to forgive, quick to be right with you so that we can walk with you in a way that is pleasing. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. This is a precious passage. It is a great summation of a very long and lengthy letter. But it sums up the Christian life in a lot of ways. And so we pray that we would be able to apply these to our life. Not just look at a Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, but we look at our own lives and each and every one of these imperatives and learn to apply them and live them for your glory and certainly for our joy. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. Just two verses today, but two very powerful verses. They're made up of five imperatives that I call for the Lord's servant. If you're a servant of the Lord, if he's your Lord, if he's your master, if you bow the knee to him as your, 
as your Savior. These are five wonderful imperatives to help you love His Son, love His Word, and love one another. These will affect us greatly. It's amazing, after 15 chapters, and Paul has exposed many problems within the church, their factitious behavior, their rebuking that needed to be done from godless behavior. He's challenged them on the erroneous theology that they developed. He now sums up the answers to so many of their problems as I think about this entire letter in these two little verses in these five imperatives. And the letter is full of instruction, right? He has a Christ-like love for them. He's caring for them. He constantly refers to them as brethren. And yet he challenges them. And even in his second letter, he challenges whether some of them are even the faith. But these are to help them realize if they're in their faith, these are the things that should be evident in their life. And these don't change. That's the word of God. And so the things that were for this first century church are just as much for us today. And whether you need a biblical, Christ-centered course direction in your life, you could need that. You have wavered from a life dedicated to Jesus Christ. These are for you. Or maybe you just need an encouragement to keep running, to keep the faith, to run the race, to finish well. These imperatives are for you and me. Now, I promise you, if we make these five imperatives a priority in our life for the glory of Christ, and I think that's the key, for Christ, through Christ, and in Christ, that's our position, if we'll do that, you'll experience great joy. We'll have great joy. There's, uh, one of the first byproducts of obedience is joy. You know that. If you have children, you see when children are right with you, when they've when they've asked forgiveness and they're right for you, there's an immediate response of joy back with you if it's true repentance. And so these areas are meant to bring us great joy. And those struggles remain, they actually will help you understand why you're in them and how to use them for the glory of God. I trust he will challenge all of us today through these five imperatives. Let's start with number one. Number one, Christ makes the spiritually dead spiritually alert for his glory and our joy. Well, this is the first of four in verse 13. He says, be on the alert. Now, here we have just one Greek word there, and most of these are one Greek word through there. But the tenses and the syntax helps us understand that we can put them in a phrase, be on the alert. And Paul is using this first challenge to help the believer determine whether they are awake spiritually or they have drifted off into spiritual slumber. And maybe even worse, drifted off into spiritual indifference, which is almost impossible as a believer when you think about that. He's cautioning them. Have you fallen asleep? The word is an imperative, and you know what imperative is. It means it's a command form. It's not a suggestion. Don't think about being alert. He's telling you, be alert. Wake up. Any of you might have just dozed off. I got you there, didn't I? I hope this text does that for you. It's a command to attentiveness. Attentiveness to the things of God. Who he is, what he does. There's a watchfulness to this word. It's used to speak of people who are spiritually alive, a vibrant, 
in their faith, not asleep at the wheel. Well, why does he do this? Why this? Why did he chose here? Well, self-centeredness have captured the Corinthians. Their, their goal for um, self-glorification and self-edification had overtaken them and led them down so many wrong paths. And self-centeredness, listen, brothers and sisters, will always put you to sleep spiritually. You'll start to be consumed with yourself and you'll spiritually start to fall asleep. You will not be alert to the things that have been going on. And this is exactly what was happening in the Corinth church. They had fallen into this spiritual trap. And now they were susceptible to sin and self-centered views and practices that Paul took on chapter after chapter. And it led them to justify the divisions and factions that they were in. It led them to justify the pursuit of human wisdom over God's wisdom. It led them to allow immorality to take place firsthand in their church and do nothing about it. This is where it got them. They perverted marriage and gender. They abused spiritual gifts. They cared little to edify one another. And they were a loveless church. That's where self-centeredness takes. It causes them to fall asleep. The opposite of That is to love Christ with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To love his word, to love his children, to love his people. You've heard me recite that many times. That's what love is. That's where God's taking us. Love for self, it's it's so dangerous. It'll cause you not to be alert to a prowling lion that Satan is described as. Prowler. You've all watched the Discovery Channel, and that one gazelle that's not paying attention. You go, he's dead. He's, he's not going to get out of the field. You know it. You're watching it. Pretty soon, they got him by the neck, and you're dragging him up a tree. So this is what happens. You fall asleep spiritually. You're not right with God. The Word of God's not penetrating your heart. Your prayer life is nil. He's a prowling, lying. You're susceptible to his tax, according to 1 Peter 5.8. See, self-centeredness will always give way to temptation. That's what it does. When we are consumed with self, you can bet temptation's coming right with that. And it's often caused maybe by somebody who hurt you or did something they shouldn't have done to you, but you get caught up in that, and that allows that, that mind to begin to be consumed with self, and pretty soon temptation's right there to drag you away. And it takes you where you do not want to go. It blinds you. And it blinds the unalerted individual from the Lord's help. And pretty soon you're there struggling by yourself. Because you have chose to fall asleep spiritually due to selfishness. Listen, unalert individuals become spiritually lazy. They stop taking sin seriously. I mean, just think about that thought. Sin put Jesus on the cross. (laughs) There's no greater hatred that you've ever seen or experienced of what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just by mankind, and let let alone his father planned his death. Because it was the only way to get us there. See, spiritual laziness, you take sin not very seriously. 
You blame shift it. You push it off. You run it off to somebody else. And you begin to rationalize and justify just to satisfy those desires because that's what's captured you now. And you're no longer alert. You have no idea what the Lord's doing. I think this probably saddens me enough in my own life or in life of the church through the many years of ministry is those who have been consumed with self just have no idea what the Lord's doing. They don't know what he's doing around the world. They don't even know what he's doing in their church. They're, they're mad about things, but they don't even know what they're mad about. And, and maybe they do have some valid points, but they, they don't see what God's doing. They don't see where God's working because selfishness has grabbed them and taken them away, and they're no longer alert to what the Lord is doing. Isn't that sad? I mean, I, I want to hear what God's doing in your life. I want to know how he's working. I want to find where he's at and say, can I join him? But when we become selfish, we miss all that. It goes by us and other people get on and, and go, wow, isn't God great? And you're over there going, I guess. See, we become asleep. The problem is the word of God is no longer, a, at least to us, excuse me, to us, a powerful two-edged sword. It's not getting us both ways. It's not even getting us one way anymore. It's not the word of God that's hidden in our heart to keep us from sin. That has now been dulled. The truth of God's word becomes less and less valuable. In fact, if you use it, you may probably and most likely use it out of context. Or maybe just a little pep rally verse. See, what happens is this selfishness, this at lack of being alert spiritually leaves you vulnerable to the heresies that will arise in your own heart. I mean, the heart's desperately wicked. The Bible tells us we know this, right? So it's, it has wickedness that wants to come up and you, you go, but I'm saved. Yes, we're saved. But you know, be honest, brothers and sisters, some of the things that go through your mind and heart that you would be ashamed if they ever got out. And when you fall asleep spiritually, those things get empowered. And this is Paul's warning to this church. Be alert. Take truth. God's word. Use it rightly. Don't twist it. Don't empower yourself. Don't rob God of his glory. Bend the knee to him. True Christian, look. You look at these things and you go, these are imperative. They're both a warning to me and they're both encouraging to me. Lord, I love being attentive to you. I love hearing you. I love reading the word and it jumping off the page and smacking me around at times and encouraging my heart at other times. So you're alert. You see them as both warnings and encouragement. It reminds us that God's given us his spirit to look at the word. I mean, what an amazing thing. Think about this. God took his own person, his own spirit, and placed it in you at salvation so you could never be lost and you would always understand what he's doing through the word of God. It is an amazing thing. I was talking to one of our young men this week and we were chatting about some of the greatest things that we would qualify as a Christian. And, and one of the things we stopped and just pondered for a moment was the reality that Christians are spirit indwelled by God. No religion even talks about that kind of stuff. They're afraid of their gods. <laughs> Our God is so close, he lives within us. 
And he's wanting to produce his fruit. And the gift of the Spirit is a Spirit-filled, and I think self-controlled. As I look through the fruit of the Spirit, I think that probably is the most connecting fruit of the Spirit to being alert. You, you, you lose self-control, I promise you will not be alert. And you'll be susceptible to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Spiritual alertness causes us to be dependent on Christ. See, you, you, I think there's, we can sometimes say, well, I'm, I'm alert. And look at me. I can quote this and do that. And look what I do and look what I don't do. I think spiritual alertness makes you humble. And I think it causes you to be dependent and less independent. You get that? See, when you're spiritually asleep and you're consumed by selfishness, you live independent of God. But spiritual alert people are tremendously dependent on God. They know how weak they are. They know how susceptible they are to sin, their own heart, their own desires. Oh God, if it was not for you, there go I. See, that's why this is so important. See, I think spiritual alertness is the one who's still amazed at grace. Just think about sin you got in this week. Maybe it was an attitude a thought, maybe you're angry, so I don't, whatever it was, right? We all probably struggled in some way. I promise you, in the middle of that struggle, you thought little about Jesus Christ. See how it does? See how it makes you go into a spiritual slumber and you don't think about Christ? It draws you away to your own problems, what need that wasn't met, what was wrong done to me. And pretty soon you're there and you never thought about the Christ who hung on the cross for the forgiveness of that sin you're now even struggling with. This is why it's so important to be alert. See, part of the glory of Christ seen in us is that he can make you complete. He can make you spiritually alert. That's his glory in us, alert people. That glory of Christ is awaken us. It's a bright and shiny glory of God that, that, that arouses you to his truth. That's his glory in us. And part of his glory seen in us is, I think, an essential component is that we realize he can do what nobody else can do. You can run to all the self-helps. You can go to all the whatever thing, trying to get over whatever you're trying to get over, and it'll fail, but Christ will not. He's so faithful. He can take all your devastation. He can take all the bad things. He can take all the pain. He can make you complete and spiritually alert where nobody else can do that. That's how glorious he is. And this is why he's trying to get our attention back to this. This is why he's trying to wrap this up with this church that's gone off the rails to bring them back. You've gone to sleep, Corinth. Maybe you've gone to sleep. And God has you here today to waken you. See, the Bible tells us that alert Christians are watching and waiting for Jesus. Watching and waiting. 
there's a sense of uh, immediacy to his return. The, the New Testament talks about it even in the first century. Now we're, we're 20 centuries away and there's still this understanding of present tense alertness to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be like those ones that have their wicks trimmed, their lamps full of oil, watching and waiting, not falling asleep and losing everything that God gave you in a sense. And when he returns, you're not expecting him. And boy, I mean, think about this, brothers and sisters. When he shows up, if he showed up this moment, where is our heart, mind, and life at? I mean, that's, that's what his true servants look for. And I don't think Corinth was doing this. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14. What sort of people ought you to be? I love that. I mean, that describes your attention, doesn't it? What sort of people ought you to be? It's not even good English. But it gets your attention, doesn't it? He says this, to be holy in conduct and godliness. That's an alert person. We're aware of our conduct, whether it reflects God or us. Can you think of something that didn't reflect God in your life today? I can in my mind right now. And I thank the Lord he died for me. Does our conduct reflect the God who saved us? He says, goes on in verse 12 in that passage, says, looking forward and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved Christian. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Scott, doesn't God do that? Doesn't he make us spotless and blameless? Yes, but there's a, diligently, there's a diligence to live within that. Right? There's an abuse in the Christian world of, well, hey, I'm saved. I can't lose my salvation because our church teaches that you can't lose it. And we live for the world. Oh, there's a diligence running after these things. Look, the dead now can be spiritually alive. That's us. Spiritually alert, ready to go, alert to holy conduct, alert to godliness, longing for the sight of our Savior whom we serve. I looked at all these five and I said, Lord, I could preach a sermon on every one of those. I just don't know if the church will put up with another five weeks uh, in Corinthians. I mean, could I not keep going on this? I mean, think about this truth, this one alone, this very first imperative, how powerful this is in our life if we could be alert. Two, <laughs> I gotta go. A saving faith worth standing firm in. A saving faith worth standing firm in. Now we come to our second imperative. And this has a multiple words within this phrase, but we translate it standing firm in the faith. Well, the faith, well, what is that? Well, that's your God-given faith. It is a gift from God. Your faith is a gift in God. Because you can't faith your way to God as an unregenerate person. You can't 
do that on your own. It has to be something supernatural. It has to be a miraculous event. Dead people just don't come, get up and stand out of their coffins and say, I want to be alive. It's something that is supernatural when we think spiritually. He takes us who are dead in our sins, the clear teaching throughout Scripture, our depravity has killed us. Spiritually speaking, there is no pulse. There's, there's nothing there to, to, to build on. It isn't a progressive, a kind of coming awake spiritually. We're dead. And God, who breathes life in us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're alive. It's an amazing thing. Something that we should never grow old of hearing, right, and worshiping over. Our songs write about it. Our preachings about it. Our Sunday school lessons are about it. It's us being alive in Christ. So this is the kind of faith that he's talking about, unless, unless you still do have faith that is of your own. And that's scary. And it's beyond scary. It's deadly. You go, well, Scott, how do I know? How do I know whether my faith is of God? Well, the apostles throughout the New Testament write about this. Listen to James 2, 14. Listen carefully to this verse. You might want to look it up. What use is it, my brethren, If someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Now listen to the question he asks. Can that faith save him? James is what he's doing all through the book of James. He's trying to show the difference between saving faith and a false faith. Other writers pick up on it. 1 Peter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, and then he gives a little teaching about that, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, Then he comes back to about that that proof of your faith. He says, may be found to result, the result of that real faith, that genuine God-given faith, is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're not worried about the coming of Jesus because you're living poorly for him. You're anticipating the coming of Jesus. It is the mark of a believer. It's the mark of someone loving this life and saying, Lord, I'm going to give it all I have, no matter what you give me, whatever you ask to have me go through, I'm going to give it all for you, and I'm going to be waiting here when you show up while I serve. That's what he asked of us. And so I think what the apostles are saying here is what what use is, is it, brethren, If someone says, he or she says, I have faith, and nothing comes out of it. There's no change about the person. The life is basically the same. And maybe they profess their Christianity. They profess they have faith in Jesus, but nothing happens. Are you familiar with this? Maybe you've seen it in your own life. Maybe you walked the aisle a bunch of times and finally got saved the other day sometime, and you go, wow, God, I was never saved. We'll often see this in the, in the waters of baptism. Someone will give a testimony and say, man, I, I was born and raised in this, and I did this, and I walked this aisle, and I said this there, and then, and, but I was never saved. You might know these people. It might be even you. Notice James says, can that faith save him? I don't think James is denying that they have a faith in Jesus. It just says, I don't think, I think this is what he's saying, that that faith is from God. 
I don't think it's that faith that forgives sins forever and that saving faith that remains for eternity. I think he's helping them question that. Remember, this, this is first century. This is mostly Jews who have come to faith in the, after Pentecost, and, and they've had all these rituals and rules and things they've done, and they're, they're staying in that, and they're working out of duty versus delight. And he's trying to awaken that church, early church, to see who's in the faith and who isn't. And so works don't bring about salvation. Salvation brings about works, right? It brings about people who care about Jesus, care about his kingdom, care about his mission, care about his commission. James and Peter are questioning this early church, just as Paul is questioning the Corinth. See, there's people who profess faith in Jesus, but they never repent of their sins. They never receive him as Lord. That's a big difference, isn't it? Well, he's maybe keep me out of hell, and I got myself a nice fire insurance in my back pocket here. Is he Lord, ruler, master of your life? That's what he's asking. Now, that doesn't mean that we are perfect, perfectly saved, but perfect, right? We are men and women, young and old, who come regularly to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, that thought, that action, that word, whatever that was, was not of you. Thank you for dying for my sin. Help me to run with you and walk with you. Yes, that's what we do. But this is a Jesus who died for our sins so we can live for him. See, I think that there are many in Matthew Jesus himself says that there are many who will say, Lord, Lord. See, we did all these things, works with no faith. Now, now the apostles are saying, well, you say you have faith, but there's no, there's no evidence of that. Why would a great God who would sacrifice his own son, save us from our sins for eternity, for past, present, future sins, t- take all that away, save us to be his children for the rest of eternity, and not produce glory of him through that? Just live a everyday life that looks no different than anybody else. See, this is what he's after. What kind of faith are you standing firm in? See, people believe in the realities of Jesus. There was a Jesus, a historical Jesus. They prayed some kind of prayer. They walked some kind of aisle, maybe shed a tear or two. So in their mind, they have faith in Jesus. But look, the apostles, look, they're saying here, You don't have saving faith that God gives to people because if if it were real, that gift of faith would show evidence of God Almighty in his spirit living within you. That's some evidence, right? There would be some return to his investment. Well, I just buried it in the sand. You ever put that passage together? Or is it multiplied? For the glory of the master. So James, look, James calls them works. Peter calls them godliness. Paul says stand firm in your faith. Because with saving faith, there is a major difference in our life. Our life is now captured with the glory of Christ, not the glory of self. Such a difference. See, your faith is based in truth. Not your truth. That's the problem with all the religions of the world. They're all based in man's truth. True Christian, Christ-following, lordship salvation is based in the truth of God's word. 
because he awakens you from the dead and he makes you alive. Corinthians had tried to substitute their faith with worldly wisdom. Man, did they get caught up in that. They mocked the Apostle Paul because he couldn't speak like the great oratorials, oratoricals of the day. They mocked him for it. They were so into that and missed the simple message of the gospel. But what's the answer to the challenges by living in this life, living under the sun, living into this fallen world? What is the, what is the answer? Was to stand firm in your God-given faith. Lord, without you, I have nothing. Would you strengthen me to be able to do that? Jude 3, you love this verse, contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Man, I looked up that verb, contending earnestly. The verb speaks of something with strenuous effort. He goes, God, well, I thought we were saved not by our works. No, no. We aren't. <laughs> our salvation comes so free of our works, praise God. But to stand in faith takes tremendous effort by us because we're fighting our flesh through the help of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the accountability of one another. We're, we fight that off, but it does, it is strenuous. I mean, if you're a Christian at any time lengthened here, you know this is what a battle, isn't it? Every morning you wake up, your flesh is armed and ready. Come on, dude. I'm going to get you thinking about yourself the moment you wake up. I'm ready for you. What will you do with that? See, this is what he's after. And I think this is the mark of those who love the gospel. And Paul said, he said in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I preached this gospel to you. You received it. You stood at it. And this is the kind of faith that calls you to a good fight. This is the kind of faith that is firm and you can stand it in one spirit, one mind, striving together with the faith of the gospel. That's the alert one, standing firm in the faith, holding something that Satan can never take from you. And Jesus said, look, they can take everything from you, but they cannot take your soul. I own it. It's mine. I mean, doesn't that strengthen you? If you go and you hear some diagnosis that you just, you know, oh, man. Or, or, or something happens that's so hard. I mean, I, and look, we're emotional people. God made us that way, and there's certain things we're going to react to. But in the end, isn't it the strength that God gives us to say, I'll take whatever you sin because you're worthy of it, Jesus. Do you want to die that way? Or do you want to die miserably? thinking about yourself and hope you're saved. One of the things that what he does, he, he produces a spirit and this joy for living with him so it gives you assurance because you're just not constantly, day after day, living for self, living for self. The assurance is that there is something in you. There's something that's foreign, right? It is, is something of God. He's, he's given us this spirit, this desire to live for him to help us realize I am not of this world. Yes, my desires sometimes want to go to those, but I'm not of this world. Oh, that's, that's security, brothers and sisters. That's assurance. Give heed to that. Reject the sinful human wisdom that the Corinthians bought in. Trust in the sovereignty of God where he has you, not in yourself. Stand firm in your faith, your God-given faith, and he'll strengthen your weaknesses. 
Corinthians were not doing this. And they seemed to stumble over every little fleshly things. Look, you have a precious faith. God himself gave it to you. It's amazing. Take care of it. Stand in it. Embrace it. Guard it. Because corruption and perversion of the truth is waiting. This isn't only for the Corinthians. He, told, he spoke of this all the time. 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, 2, 15. He says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold the traditions which were taught to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Hold on to them. I think sometimes we just need messages to remind us to hold, stand firm. God will see it through. Well, in order to stand firm in your faith, you you have to put your faith in the Word of God daily. The Word of God is not some tear-off calendar. It's not some verse that is taken out of context. The Word of God is to be treasured. It is to be stored in our heart, the Bible says, so we don't sin against God. It is to be read. It is to be studied. It is to be contemplated. It is to be meditated on. It is to be consume it in and bring it back up. Think about it again. Bring it back down. Think about it. Chew it. Put it to work and throughout the whole body. Let it, let it go through the veins and let it work through its cells. Let it take over your life in a sense. That's what the Word of God does. Let it judge and evaluate you. Let the scriptures do those things. This is what an alert believer does, and this is what one who stands firm in the faith. Number three, men and marriages captured by the glory of Christ. This is the third imperative. Again, just one word here in the Greek. We translate it, act like men, because of the syntactical way the verses led us to translate it. It certainly has the idea of maturity. It could be said and even translated, be mature with courage. Uh, the word uh, courage, I think, is very important. We get ideas out of that, out of the word. It is spoken of men going to war, and this is why it gets translated this way. Men who would come along, captains of the guards, uh, leaders, teaching men, helping men to be ready to lay their life down for the king. This is the idea that comes out of it. I think maybe it's possible Paul got this from King David. At the end of King David's life, 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 through 2, as David it's time to die drew near. Doesn't that kind of bring a real good word picture? He charged Solomon, his son, I am going the way of all of the earth. That'll tell you where we live. We live under a fallen earth. Then he says this, be strong, therefore, and show yourself what? Anybody know the verse? A man. Solomon, be strong, and show yourself a man. What a statement. And, and it's, it's possibly Paul, because remember, they're studying the Old Testament, the New Testament. They're actually writing it <laughs> as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. He's using the Old Testament to see Jesus Christ and be uh, there to teach all those truths, all of that 
history of, of Israel and all that history of the teaching, he's flowing down and finding its fulfillment in Christ. He's, he's landing here. So here he's probably thinking about this is what we need to be. We need to be strong and we need to be men who are alert. And he sees that as one of the failures of Corinth. The men failed in Corinth. In fact, many of the members, both men and women, he says in chapter 14, verse 20, Brethren, do not be like children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. He uses the male pronoun there. So as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. For you're still fleshly. See, Paul's desires for the church, and particularly the men of the church, was for them to say, exercise self-control, humble confidence, courageous in Christ and the faith that God had given them. Chapter 13, at the end, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. See, maturing Christ is the one who loves Christ. That's maturity. And that's what we have to battle, right? We, we're, we're, we, can, we can fall out of bed loving ourselves, right? I mean, it's just easy. We wake up and think about ourselves. I'm tired. i got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. i got all these things to do. I mean, we're just monsters, me monsters, right, when we wake up. You know this. That's why you're laughing. But maturity says, no, Lord. My life belongs to you. I love you. It isn't soon after that you find yourself in the word one way or another. You're getting into the word quickly because you know the battle for your heart is at raging right now. So it doesn't take long before you're up and in the word. And, and then you, once you've been in the word, now it gives you a love like Christ has. And, and you begin to be concerned for others. And you start praying for others. And you may have, many of you have prayer lists for people. And you start to pray for people. See, this is the mark of maturity. It's a biblical mark. And it's truly a biblical emotion that God gives us, this love for Christ, this love for word, this love for people, but it is not without action. Act like men. That's what he's after. Men who love. It's the overarching principle of the fruit of the Spirit. Men who love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's, it's the main verb there. Main verb for wives. Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Those main verbs are action. There's something that comes with that. Something you do, a reaction to the gospel. The world hates that stuff, doesn't it? But God loves it. He wants men to reflect Christ, and he wants women to reflect the church. And listen, we could speak a great amount of time, and I won't today, of the feminization of the church today in America particularly. It's all because we forfeit leadership in the home and church and so forth. I pray that's not the common thing in this church, but that's what's happening. Men have forfeited this God-given role that's unique to them, 
And, and all of a sudden, now they're wanting the role of what he uniquely gave to, God, uh, to, the, to the women. It's crazy. And when we wonder, how does this happen? Well, it started in the garden, didn't it? Adam was there. He heard the command from God. He let her fall into deception. She's guilty. She sinned. But he was there. The Bible says he was with her. He failed there. And this is the problem. Men, at times we fail to lead. Today, the church and the home are so weak because men fail to mature in Christ. You go, Scott, why are you always pushing DTP? Why are you pushing discipleship? Why are you pushing these things? Because we're going to fall apart if we don't get grow, right? It's too hard. This life is difficult. You need to be discipled, brothers and sisters. We have to keep growing. It doesn't mean, well, I made it through DTP. I'm done. Learn till you die. <laughs> He's worth it. Keep studying. Fill these BFG classes. Take things that come along. Take opportunity. Take a Bible college class. Find something to keep growing in the Lord and then act on it. That's what he's after. Look, some of you here are going, Scott, you just know in my life, I have all this guilt. Jesus is bigger than your guilt. He died for your guilt. In fact, Paul says, forget the things in the past and keep pressing on to the upward calling of Christ. You want to stay in your guilt? Oh, you're right in Satan's playground. And I promise you, it's full of selfishness. Well, Scott, you don't know. I've been abused in some way. And I have fears and I have all these things. And I'm sorry that happened to you. But he's bigger than that. I just finished a... Oh, reading a biography of three Christians who now were Christians, all involved in World War II in Japan. I told Jean, I've read, uh, you can see my bookshelf if you've ever been in. I show my bookshelf of biographies. I try to read one every summer, maybe two. This summer I read two because they encouraged my soul. And I got done with that and just wept. And there's just, there's just no way to say, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. Men incarcerated in some of the most difficult things. Children loving the ones who beheaded their parents because of Christ. He can, oh, he, he's the one who overcomes. Greater is he that is in the world. He's greater than the one who's in the world. Greater is he. He can overcome. Got failures? He overcame them. He died for them. Every pounding of the nail was for your failures. Why do you let them beat you up? Why do you let you keep you immature? He's great, isn't he? He says, God, I had poor examples. I didn't have the mom and dad. I didn't have that. I'll tell you what. This is better than any mom and dad. Now, God gave moms and dads, and I love moms and dads. We love being mom and dad to our children, now our grandchildren and grandparents. I love that. And there's a wonderful thing God does with that. But if he took you away from all of that and only gave you this, would it be enough? That's the word. It's powerful. It's unchanging. This is how men become men. 
Your wives are going, man, I'm glad this is just about the guys. Hold on, ladies. I'm not going to get to my other point, but I'm going to get to this one. Ladies, what's your role in men being men? Do you play a role in this? How does God use you in your man's life? Is God using you to help your man or to hinder him? Everything in the world tells him now he's a wuss. He's a joke of every sitcom, every movie. He is looked down on just because of a choice God made to make him male. Don't look down on your husband. He's a failure and a sinner. And he needs the blood of Jesus Christ, but he needs a wife who stands next to him and loves him, cares for him, weeps over him, prays for him. I praise God I've seen in my little world around what I've traveled and where I'm at just a little bit. I'm seeing a resurgent in biblical womanhood. The ladies are starting to say, no, we're not doing that. We know what a woman is and we know what God's called us to do. And there's a resurgent and it's coming from the biblical church. And I'm applauding it as best I can. And I hope, ladies, you're a part of that. And I love that those things are happening. And I'm praying it affects biblical manhood. It seems like we can have a study and the ladies will fill it. And we'll have a study and the men will, well... And right now, we're, we've been joking with Kelly and Libby, and uh, they're, they're neck and neck on how many are in each one of them. They're very close, I think. Are we correct here? Are you, Kelly's going, I got her by one, maybe? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he's, they're very proud of that. So none of you guys drop out, or girls, you know. Uh, um, but I think it's our nature, men. Look, I'm provided, uh, you know, we stand and tell our children, like, I got you through college. Never spoke Christ in your life or cared for your soul. I, I, I protected you. But you never showed them how to live for Jesus. Uh, see, these, this is the problem, and, and that affects the church. And pretty soon you have a feminized church because men who don't lead at home certainly are not going to last very long as good leaders in the church. In fact, everything about the elder, the pastor, the overseer is about the character of a man and his home. And so he's asking us, will you be a man, a biblical man? And wives, will you support him? Will you help him? Will you pray for him? Will you love with him? Will you forgive him? Will you glorify me in your unique role that I gave you on this earth to, to show who I am and to show to the world what the church should act like? Look, at knowing Jesus means increased, multiplied, abounding grace and peace even in your marriage. If you say you know Jesus and you don't have peace in your marriage, there's something wrong. And you can't say it's her or his fault. you got to go, it's mine. That's the only thing that I'm going to stand up before the Lord. I can't stand up for her or him. I'm standing in front of him. What would you do with the gift I gave you? 
This is so important, isn't it? Knowing Jesus means you believe in his divine power over your life. You're a new creature. You have the spirit dwelling with you. You can love where it's hard to love because that's what Christ did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's powerful scene on the cross. And he empowers us. He empowers wives. He empowers husbands. He empowers children who are saved. He empowers you to live this way. It is until selfishness just drags us away and we robs us of our joy. And we live like roommates and not one. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that your marriage? Look, we're always working on them. We're two selfish people brought together, weaved together to make one, and we take vows and we slide rings on our fingers and we repeat those things, and the battle begins, doesn't it? As Jesus, Lord of your marriage, what's your role? Act like men, Jesus-loving men, word-loving men, church-loving men, husbands and wives submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their own lines, wives submitting as an act of worship to Jesus. He'll give you everything you need. He'll strengthen you. Father, I thank you for these first three imperatives. There's two more to go, Lord. These three have been challenging to all of our hearts and all of our minds. I think probably many in this room or those hearing this from somewhere, true Christians, our hearts are rattled a little bit. We're weak, Lord, at times. We, we succumb to self-centeredness and then we lose our joy and we lose our direction and we become spiritually blind and we're susceptible to temptation and attack and all kinds of things. And then we wonder why. Because we haven't fixed our eyes on the one who died for us so that we can live for him. Not standing firm in our faith, this gift that he's given to us, this amazing gift that makes dead people alive for eternity. We, we stand in worldly philosophies or things that we think are more important. And then, Lord, we don't take our roles seriously. We don't act like biblical men and biblical women. By the lies of the world, we let them seep in slowly but surely. We fight for our own positions. Lord, we need a church full of broken husbands and wives who love Jesus, love his word, and love one another. Lord, I ask that you would do that for us. Cause us to have biblical marriages that are overwhelmed with the person of Jesus. When we fail each other, we will be quick to ask forgiveness, to restore us in right thinking, right living, so that you're glorified and we have joy. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name.